I want to get into our scripture today, Mark chapter 7. And a lot of times I just want to say something by way of a little pastoral exhortation. You know, some of you came from traditions where your Bible was what went on the coffee table, all right? So people could come over and there was that big massive Bible there that nobody ever opened, but, you know, good, respectable people put that on your coffee table to tell all your friends that, you know, you're in okay with the big guy. You guys know what I'm talking about. But that's really not what your Bible should look like. When I tell you sometimes, circle this word, some of you think, that's sacrilegious. Why would, I, why would I write in the Holy Scriptures? Because you're engaging in the Bible and you're learning, and the Bible's not a book that you put to, to observe on your bookshelf. It's something that you chew on and read and, and work with and highlight. And so I like Bibles with real wide columns because I write stuff there. I also... As you can see, this looks like a, a, a kid's coloring book. After I've used pen and pencil, then I go to markers, and then I use multiple markers, and I highlight things. And here's the deal. I've never been a good journaler. Any, any people struggle with journaling? I, I know I'm supposed to journal. And then the Lord said to me, you are journaling. You're going to pass to your children all of the Bibles that you worked out in for years with all those notes, and you're going to pass those on to your children who will be able to glean from your personal walk with God and what God showed you. How many of you know it's important to write in your Bible, underline your Bible, circle stuff in your Bible, and after you've worn that one out, get a fresh Bible. I love fresh Bibles because there's nothing in them except the Word of God, and then I get to write all of my comments and highlight and circle and connect dots and cross-reference, and oh, it's amazing. So I'm encouraging you all. Mess up your Bible today, all right? Get out your pen. Get out your pencil. Take some notes. Get out your marker. Highlight things, but interact with the Scriptures and make it real for you personally, all right? All right, we're going to be in Mark chapter 7. The title of this message is, You Still Don't Get It. Now, how many of you have ever felt that personally about something? As much as you try, it's like, duh, why can't I figure this out? In fact, have you ever had the Lord do something in your life, say in 2022, and it was amazing, and then in 2023, you faced the same challenge, and you forgot that God was faithful a year ago, and now you're freaking out and worried. Anybody ever been in that situation? It's like, duh, like the Lord's going, when are you going to connect the dots? Um, and I feel like that's what we're dealing with with a couple of groups of people today. Let's take a look, first of all, at the Pharisees. Now, look at what it says in Mark chapter 7. And by the way, I hope you're reading through the Gospel of Mark. That's where we're going to be up through uh, Resurrection Sunday. So I hope you'll read through with us and study for yourself before church, and we'll share notes, all right? All right, we're going to look at uh, Mark 7, verse 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. Now, I circled that word see in my Bible, and I put in the, com in the commentary the word seek. How many of you know one letter can make a tremendous difference? The, or the Pharisees came to see Jesus, not to see him for the purpose of seeking more of him, but to see what was going on as critics and judges. How do you know there's a big difference? When there's a move of God, there's always people that come to see. But sometimes they're critical. They're judgmental. They come with a notepad, and they're, they're going to highlight what everybody's doing wrong. How I mean, you know that's a terrible way to live your life is being a, a chief critic? But if you add one letter to that word and you become a seeker, it's a game changer. Because seekers actually encounter 
Jesus. Seekers actually get transformed. Seers, not so much. So take a look. They came to see Jesus. Notice, it says here, they noticed. They noticed that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual of hand-washing before eating. Now, I want you to circle the word ritual because we're going to highlight three dirty words for Christians, all right? Ritual. It says in parentheses here, verse 3, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Now, circle the word tradition. So now we've got rituals. And now we got traditions. In fact, these are ancient traditions. They've been around for a long, long time. Verse 4, similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions, there's that word again, they have clung to. So instead of clinging to Jesus or clinging to the word, they're clinging to traditions, such as their ceremonial, that's another word, ceremonies, ceremonial washing of cups and pitchers and kettles. So here's what the Pharisees are promoting. They're promoting religion. Well, what is religion? It's, it's made up of rituals and traditions and ceremonies of men. Now, next week we're, we're going to have what we could call a ceremony, all right? We're, we're dedicating children. How many of you know that's a ceremony? And in a few more weeks, we're going to baptize people. That, that, that's another thing that could be a, called a ritual or a tradition or a ceremony. What makes something a good ceremony versus a bad ceremony? Let me tell you what. It's the heart. It's the content. How many of you know you can get wet and not be baptized. You, you can get wet as can be. You can, they can hold you under a long time, and you can come up unchanged, because getting wet on a Sunday morning does not change you unless it's mixed with a real-life encounter with Jesus and faith. Parents, come up here. What do we do? We bring our little kids. They're all dressed up. They look so cute. We put their pictures on the screen. We're going to have a baby dedication. We invite all of our relatives to come out. And uh, sometimes we give out certificates and we bless the children. How many of you know all that's good? But if you as a parent don't know Jesus and haven't submitted your life to Christ and you're not seriously committed and dedicated to raising your children to love Christ, you just went through a ritual. You can say, honey, when you were three, we dedicated you to the Lord. So what if you live like a pagan the rest of your life? Do you think that ritual has some magic effect when you as a parent aren't living for the gospel and don't know Christ? Do you think that, that ritual is somehow going to transform your child's life? It's not. It's religion. And religion and ceremony and tradition, apart from a real encounter with Jesus, is just religious stuff. And that's what the Pharisees were all about. They're like, you're, 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 not, you're, you're not clean because you went out in the marketplace where all those losers are, and you might have touched somebody, and you might have become unclean. They had the whole wrong idea about what Jesus was after. And so I want to make sure, our first point here, when people, the worst thing someone can call you is religious. I usually correct people when they, well, you're, you're a religious man. I'm like, no, I'm not. Oh, yes, you are. You're you're a reverend. No, I'm not. That's another one. I'm a pastor. There's a difference, you know. Um, and uh, I said, no, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Oh, but, but you're religious. Well, I'm no more religious than you are. 
But it's big, big difference here. I am somebody who has been encountered by Jesus Christ. I've given my life to him. I have a relationship with him. I'm pursuing him. Which is why that first song we sang today is, is a good one in context. Because what we're asking the Lord to do is to slay all of the religious traditions and ceremonial things and rituals that have lost the substance and the core, Jesus Christ. Now, I was talking to a dear brother in the Lord. If I mentioned his name, and I will not, um, but he sits right there, third service on the front row. If you want to see who it was, you can come third service. <laughs> but he loves the Word of God. He devours the Word of God. In fact, he works in the steel mill. Some of you will know who I'm talking about. And in the steel mill, uh, he's got the best job in the world because he sits there, and most of his job is spent reading the Scriptures and getting paid for it. What a cool job is that? But anyway... Somebody was taking him to task at the steel mill about the ritualistic language associated with water baptism and concluding that because his language, the language used to immerse somebody, was not right, that he wasn't even saved. How sick is that? Because someone doesn't use the right formula in baptizing somebody, not only is their baptism false, but they're not even saved. Let me ask you a simple question. Since when did God put you in charge of running around figuring out if folks are saved or not? Like, how do you know what's going on in somebody's heart? Quick answer. You don't, and neither do I. So you're not following the tradition of our denomination. Well, maybe you need to drop the tradition of your denomination. If your traditions had been elevated above the clear essential teaching of the Word of God. You know, we got people that, we got people that might have got offended at song number three. If song number one didn't offend you, song three got you. Got you good. Well, we grew up in our, in our church. We don't believe that Jesus still does that stuff today. Oh, Really? Well, where in the Bible does it say that Jesus doesn't do that anymore? What's the scripture and verse for that? Well, when you go back through the history of our denomination, it's just always been our experience that we've had no experience with that. <laughs> and therefore, since we've had no experience with the experiences you're talking about, those experiences must not be happening today, and God must not be doing those things anymore. Well, really, I think you've elevated the traditions of your denomination above the clear teaching of Scripture because we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus is still acting like he's still Lord, and this church is supposed to do the stuff. And so our lack of experience is never an excuse for elevating the traditions of our denomination above the clear teaching of Scripture. In fact, the Scripture is written to invite you to experience more, not to make theological excuses for why supposedly God's not doing that any longer. We do this all the time. And listen, to the degree that you limit God or I limit God through religion and ritual and ceremony and tradition, we kill the supernatural movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our ministries. So... I don't want to be religious. I don't want to put Jesus in a box. I don't want to come up with excuses for why there's a power outage in my life. I want to pursue more of the Holy Spirit. I want to fix the power outage so that my life more closely resembles what I read about in the Scriptures. Is this making sense to everybody? 
we can't sit here and look at the Pharisees and act like we don't deal with this. There, listen, there are people that will lose fellowship with other people who love Jesus, who believe that there's salvation through the blood of Jesus, faith in Jesus alone. But if you have a different view on X, Y, or Z, which is non-essential, please hear me. What, Pastor, what do you mean by non-essential? I mean that it's not essential to your salvation. then we act like those people aren't even going to heaven. You Pharisee. Just because I don't believe everything exactly the way you do, I'm now a cult leader? It ha it, right now, the church is full of this kind of stuff. And I think it grieves the heart of God. Not that we can't have some good, healthy theological discussions about certain doctrines. But you know, at the end of the day, if I, if I say, well, you're not a Christian just because you, you, you believe it. Once saved, always saved. We have all these little cliches, things that we use, all these little straws. You believe, you believe women shouldn't breathe in church. <laughs> um, that was a joke. <laughs> we take all of these things and make them so big. And then even question whether somebody really loves Jesus or they're even going to heaven or they're the devil themselves because they don't agree with every little way we've done it or whatever. Come on, folks. Run from that pharisaical spirit. It will kill you. It will kill you. Look at what Jesus goes on, says here. Look at verse 5. So the Pharisees and the teachers over the religious law asked him, um, Jesus, why don't your disciples... Follow our age-old tradition. Now, I mean, you know, traditions are bad enough, but age-old traditions. This is a vintage tradition. This one's been, we've been doing it this way for years. And your disciples aren't following the program. And I love what Jesus is doing here. Look at it. He says that the Pharisees say they eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Aren't you glad we're not doing that? Man, after lunch, you're hungry, and you just want to eat a big sandwich, and now we've got to have a hand washing. So we, okay, wash your hands. We're going to have a ceremony. That's more involved, and we want everybody to see how we cup our hands and how we go about washing our hands. I'm just glad we, thank God we can just eat. Any guys say amen on that? Come on. What? Now, I'm not recommending this, but I used to landscape. My, I was covered with dirt. I mean, my fingers were covered with sod dirt. And we would eat, and I would go get a Slurpee for lunch, a giant 7-Eleven, and I'd eat a sandwich. And the only thing clean on my hands was my fingertips because the bread absorbed the stuff on my fingertips. <laughs> I would look at my hands, and the only thing clean was, my, was where I grabbed the food I just ate. Oh, those were good old days. But the Pharisees, back to the Pharisees. How many of you know I'm still alive? All right, I'm still alive. Jesus, the warm, kind, compassionate, tender-hearted Jesus replies. Anybody reading ahead? <laughs> now, this is great. Think about this. Jesus, how come your boys aren't going through the ceremony? Jesus' response. You hypocrite. Holy cow. Get Jesus out of your little box. Oh, Jesus would never talk like that. He talks like that all the time because he knows what's going on in their hearts. Listen to what Jesus says. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. 
For this is what he wrote. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In other words, that word hypocrite means stage player, pretender, poser, actor, people who say the right words, but their hearts are a million miles away. Their worship, Jesus says, is a farce. That word farce means aimless, pointless, and without purpose. Now, let me just pause here. The Lord is not condemning any of us here today. You people, your lips, your hearts are... How many of you know this is an invitation to deal with our hearts? Have you ever come to church and had a bad week? Have you ever come to church and had a really bad moment in your car before you got to the parking lot attendant? You're like, hey, bro. All right. There are some people, there are some people, they, I've heard this, I'm not going to go to church and be a hypocrite. And I always say, stop talking that way. So you're going to stay home and be a hypocrite. Why don't you come to church and be a hypocrite in process? A hypocrite moving into authenticity instead of being an authentic hypocrite at home. A 100% tried and true hypocrite at home. Stop talking that way. Remember we said this. We all live on this broken planet. We're all falling short of the glory of God. We all have hearts that we struggle with. Thank God, as Marion said, there's more than two of us in this place. Hallelujah. Thank God when the worship team starts playing, if my heart is cold, I have a very clear assignment. I just say, Jesus, help. And I open my heart to him, and I say, Lord, forgive me for that attitude. Lord, forgive me for, when I, for doubting you this week. Forgive me for losing it. And guess what? Grace starts pouring on my heart. And then I start singing about who he is, and my heart starts getting tender. And my gosh, by the time we hit the third song, revival's breaking out in my spirit. And I'm happy and full of the joy of the Lord. You're not a hypocrite. You're moving into authenticity. Because your heart's the issue. We want our lips to be in sync with our heart. So what we're saying, we feel. And what we feel, we're saying. You hear what I'm saying? It goes together. So don't ever beat yourself up, but also don't act like, you know, I, I was kidding about Mary, and she, she was in this amazingly talented, top-notch, hoity-toity corral in college. They wore gowns and outfits, and they came out on stage, and they had these songbooks. And before that, they would open the song, but they didn't just open them. They had a songbook opening ceremony, right? <laughs> At least that's the way I interpreted it. <laughs> they came walking out, and it was like this. It was like a motion like this. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that was smooth. This, this is coming from a guy who, in the variety show, I played my armpit as uh, my... <laughs> So I'm like, wow, wow, whoa. <laughs> Lots of ceremony there. There are folks that that's how we come to church. Let's worship God. <laughs> we sing, but our hearts are far from him. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We hear the word, but our hearts are far from him. Our hearts are far from people around us that we should have good relationships with. Our hearts, our hearts, our hearts, our hearts. And so Jesus said, look, Christianity is not about clean, not about clean hands. He didn't, Jesus wouldn't be going, Pastor Ron, why are you eating your sandwich without going through ceremonial hand washing? My mother would say something like that, but Jesus would not say that. Because Jesus recognizes 
It's not the cleanliness of your hands. It's the cleanliness of your heart that matters to him. He says, you're teaching man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and you substitute your own tradition. Ignore God's law, substitute your own tradition. How about this? Never be content to take your bodies to church while you leave your hearts at home. Like, oh, man, I forgot this, my phone, my Bible. How about this? Where's my heart? I left it in the toilet. Oh, my gosh, I got to get my heart out of the toilet. Uh, terrible place for my heart to be, but that's exactly. Let me get it out and clean it up. Before I, you know, come on. How's, bring your clean heart with you first. If the rest of you doesn't look so good, that's okay. God will forgive that. But bring your clean heart to church. Now, look at what happens. Verse 17. Jesus went on, he gave a bunch of examples, or only one example of a bunch of examples when he talked about the Pharisees elevating their traditions above his clear commandments. But look at what it says in verse 17. Then Jesus went into a house to get away from the crowd. Now, that wasn't for bad reasons. How many know Jesus just needed to get away with the disciples? And he asked, they asked him what he meant by the parable that he, that he had just used. And look what Jesus said, don't you understand either? And then he adds this. It is what comes from the inside that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts. Isn't that interesting? Where, you would think evil thoughts came from your mind, but, but Jesus said, no, it doesn't start in your mind. It comes from your heart. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, Envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all of these vile things. That word in the Greek literally means pain-ridden. These are things which cause us pain and other people pain. Vile, pain-ridden things. They come from within. They are what defile you. Now, a little teachable moment here. In our culture today, it's very fashionable to blame circumstances outside of ourselves for problems. Uh, the biggest one right now that's being used to blame every kind of evil on the planet is climate change. It makes sense, right? <laughs> Wait, let me help you clarify. Remember when ISIS was cutting the heads off of Christians? Remember that? We saw all the graphic details. Disgusting. These are Christians. They, they, it was radical Muslims going after Christians. And the explanation for this evil by those in authority was, well, it's because climate change. Help me connect the dots. Well, climate change has caused you to live in a place where there's not a lot of job opportunity. And if you only had jobs then you wouldn't act this way because you could have all the money you needed and you could buy cars and go on vacations and, you know, like the rest of us people and we wouldn't be acting in those barbaric manners. Now, every time you start blaming something outside, or how about this? We have collective guilt. You're, it, the problem is this group or that group or this. It's all those people. Now, how many of you know collective groups don't commit evils? Individuals do. And individuals will be held accountable to God. So listen, when you say the problem is systemic, let's use racism, systemic racism. 
You're saying the whole system is rigged for racism. Now, so who's responsible? All y'all. So who's going to change it? Nobody. Because if everybody's responsible, nobody's responsible to change it. Unless we're all somehow responsible, but that never works. Because unless somebody's, somebody identifies themselves as a leader. So here's the point. Where does racism come from? Well, what color do you have to be to be racist? Any color will do. Any color will do. But when you're blaming collective groups or you're blaming climate change or whatever the situation is, you're not acting in a biblical manner. Because how about this? Now, while I'm for modesty, everybody think modesty is still a good thing? If I say, well, the reason I'm lusting is because that girl needs to put more clothes on. Jesus would say, nope, that's not why. It's because your heart has lust. And you could be on a deserted island. And you could still lust when there's nobody around you. The fact that somebody was inappropriately or immodestly dressed might have helped stimulate lust in your heart, but it was already there to stimulate. It was not put there. Now, we're living in a culture today where we blame everybody else, but Jesus said, no, it's not, the problem is not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. It's as close, it's as, close as a heartbeat away. Who is my biggest problem? My own wicked heart. That's why we need an encounter with Jesus. That's why we can't blame everybody and their brother for our sin. It's our sin. If I'm racist, it's my sin. I need Jesus to kill the racist spirit in my heart to where I can love people, all people. That's why the church should be the greatest solution because we don't blame external problems. We own it and we learn how to model it right here in real time. Amen? That's what it looks like to be the people of God. So Christianity is inside out. It starts with a regenerated heart. It starts on the inside and works its way out. Christianity, this is important, is also top-down. And this is, why would you mean top-down, Pastor? I mean, our faith is rooted in the revelation of God. God has spoken. That sets us apart. It's not a man-made religion where, it, where we create it and then we put that on God. No, God has spoken. It's revelation. We receive it, and our responsibility is to obey the Lord. Amen? So it's inside out. It's top-down. It's not full of man-made traditions and rituals and ceremonies. All right, let's go to the disciples now because they are equal opportunity as it relates to being slow learners. Let's look uh, at chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. It says, about this time, another large crowd had gathered, and the people ran out of food again. How many of you know when Christians get together, that happens quite often, right? <laughs> if there's a potluck, invariably, the poor people at the end are scraping the pot to get something left. Anybody ever been at those kind of potlucks? Okay. I've been at a few of those. Jesus called his disciples, and he told them, he said, guys, I feel sorry for these people. They've been out here with me for three days, and, and they've had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they're going to faint along the way. And some of them have come a long distance. How many of you know that Jesus is, this is a divine setup? I want you to check it out. Jesus just fed 5,000 men, not including women and children, in, in a previous chapter. He's expecting that they learn something from that. And remember when Jesus said, oh, uh, these folks, they're out here, it's getting dark. Um, they said, send them away. 
They said it probably more. Jesus, send them away. I'm sure they're very hungry. Remember, they, we said they were hungry. They didn't even have time to eat, the disciples. Send them away. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. How many of you know when Jesus tells you to do something, he also gives you the authority to do it? Yes. So, here, so here's what he says. Hey, guys. Remember you were with me a few days ago? Remember that? Okay. Hey, guys. Um, these poor people, I feel compassion for them. Remember the sheep without a shepherd thing? Jesus said, feel compassion for them. I don't want to send them away. They haven't eaten, uh, some of them, for three days. What he expected the disciples to do was say, great, we'll feed them. What would be the precedent? Two chapters earlier, we'll feed them. I, hey, guys, remember how Jesus did this? You sit there and get 50 of them here and get 50 of them here. And then, and, then, and then Jesus asked this question, what do you have to work with? He asked the same question again in this passage, what do you have to work with? Can I just encourage you? Jesus never asked you to do a miracle with something that you don't have. Start with what you have. What do you have? Sometimes it's just a breath, a prayer, a touch, uh, something. But you have something to offer. Every one of us, Jesus always says, what do you have? Can I just tell you, even when it comes to working miracles financially, the Lord doesn't ask you to do something with money you don't have. He'll ask you, well, what do you have? And he was expecting the disciples to learn from the previous situation. A little interesting note. The previous miracle with the 5,000 happened among a largely Jewish uh, audience. This is a Gentile audience. I'm not sure if the disciples have figured out that Jesus wants to actually do nice things for Gentiles. Aren't you glad he does? We're all here as a result of that. But they missed it again. And the, what they say, it, look, take a look with me. His disciples replied, how are we supposed to find enough food to feed them out here in the wilderness? Now, have any of you ever acted that way as it relates to believing God for a financial breakthrough? Lord, my goodness, how am I supposed to pay this bill? Oh, my gosh, how are you going to do this? Um, when God just like a year ago or a month ago or a week ago already met those needs and he's looking at you like, seriously, we got to cover this again? But that's exactly what happens. Jesus said, well, guys, how much bread do you have? Seven loaves. So Jesus models it for him again. Hey, let's all sit down, broke them up into groups. He took the seven loaves. Check this out. He thanked God. He broke them. And then it says he gave them to his disciples who distributed them. Now, this is a model for us. I want to encourage you all. When you're facing a challenge, whether it's a health challenge, spiritual challenge, family challenge, money challenge, don't curse your blessing. Don't murmur and complain. Don't focus on the lack. Don't focus on the challenge. Ready for this? Give thanks. Well, what do we thank God for? Start with what he blessed you with yesterday and then maybe the day before. And how about last year? And how about a decade ago? And how about two decades ago? I went up to somebody after worship service this morning who a matter of years ago was laying in a hospital bed on death row hanging by a thread. And he's here today worshiping the Lord. And I went up to him, and I just gave him a big old hug. And I said, every time I go past your place of business, my wife and I, we pray God's blessing on you. And I was just thinking of when I visited you in the hospital, and I didn't think you were going to live. And here you are standing next to me worshiping Jesus this morning. Um, I'm grateful for God, and I'm grateful for you. How about remind yourself of the goodness of God? And how about thank him for what he's done? And how about this? Thank him for what he's going to do because it's going to be awesome. Thanks. He breaks it. He distributes it. Can I encourage you? I've seen this to be true as well. 
On times where I have faced the greatest needs, God asked me what I had, and then he encouraged me to give it away. This is so counterintuitive. When you have a need, you want to hoard. But when you have a need, God wants to break it, break me, and then through the act of generosity, multiply as seed in my own situation so that somebody gets blessed, but the kickback is God does something crazy in my life. Can I just encourage us? I know the economy is crazy right now. Uh, I know prices are skyrocketing right now. Can I just encourage us? Can we believe God and be full of thanks? Can we keep being generous to the Lord and to other people in the midst of a crazy economic time? Can we believe that God still does miracles in terms of provision and multiplication? I think the answer to all that is yes, 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 yes. So let's do that. Last thing I want to share. Man, this service seems shorter than first service. You guys are talking too much. Let me go all the way down to um, the end of this passage. It says in verse 8, they ate as much as they wanted. <laughs> and afterward, the disciples picked up seven large baskets of leftover food. Principle, when it comes to Jesus, listen to me, how much of him can you have? As much as you want. You want seconds, thirds? How many of you know spiritual hunger is absolutely essential? And the problem is never with a lack on Jesus' side, it's a lack of passion on our side. Well, why do we have a lack of passion? It's my stinking heart again. I need an awakening. I feel like the Lord wants to do that today. How much of Jesus do you want? As much as you can eat. As much as to satisfy. That's the, that's the pattern in two miracles. This gets lost in the t translation, but man, it's, worth, it's worth, the, worth the price of admission. When Jesus said in the first miracle of the 5,000, he gave them uh, 12 baskets full. Remember that? Those were little baskets. They were lunch baskets. They, in other words, Jesus was saying, I have not only enough grace and power to feed this multitude, but I have enough to fill your lunch baskets to make sure you have plenty for you. The word basket that's used in the feeding of the 4,000 is a different word in the Greek. Ready for this? It's the basket that the Apostle Paul was placed in when, the, when he was in Damascus and they were trying to kill him. And the guys put him in a basket and hung him over the wall and let down the rope. Jesus gave him seven baskets big enough to hold a human being. Leftovers. As if they didn't learn the lesson the first time. I gave you 12 baskets. Now I'm going to give you seven baskets so big it would take a couple people to carry the basket. In other words, how many know God's provision wants to swallow up our lives? You're not carrying this basket. This basket's carrying you. Somebody needs that this morning. God's basket's big enough to put you inside. And then fill it up with leftovers. Last part of the story, it's really sad. The guys get in the boat, and they're arguing because Peter or somebody forgot the lunch. There's 12 guys with Jesus in a boat. He's just fed conservatively 50,000 people. Let's just say he fed Crown Point. And they're mad because somebody left the lunch and they're hungry they have one loaf 
and they're arguing with each other. Jesus just fed Crown Point. Twelve men are freaking out because somebody left the lunch on the shore. And Jesus goes, I should have had a V8. <laughs> but, but what he said was interesting. He said, you guys still don't get it. This is for some, somebody, including myself today. Listen, God is awesome, and he loves you, and he's supernatural, and nothing is impossible for him, and he's wanting to show off. And in the area of finances, he's wanting to show off. Why are we freaking out about money still? Why are we worried about money? Why do we ever worry about money? Twelve guys are going to die before they get to the other side because somebody forgot the lunch. Jesus makes stuff multiply. Jesus takes little when we give it to him and multiplies it. We got to move in supernatural faith for provision, for healing, for freedom, for deliverance, for everything. God wants to swallow us up in his provision. Stop short-circuiting the blessing of God through unbelief, through religion, through ceremony, through tradition, ancient tradition. I don't care how long you've done it. Stop thinking that way and believing that way if you want to move in greater dimensions of the supernatural. Well, would God do that for me? Are you his son? Are you his son? Are you his daughter? He doesn't have any respect for people. He will do it for you just like he'll do it for me. In fact, he's waiting. Some of you, the greatest breakthrough in your life spiritually comes when you literally see the hand of God moving in your life personally. You know what happens? Excitement starts busting out in your heart. You come to church the next week, woo! You're singing like, like you're crazy because you are seeing the power of God moving in your life. And you must, listen, if you don't move in the supernatural power of God, inevitably over time you will absolutely become a Pharisee. 100%. Because you'll settle for religion and you'll settle for ritual. And you'll miss out on a divine encounter with God. Stand your feet. I want to pray with you guys. I want our team to come up. Except if you've been here all weekend at the encounter, we're not going to let you pray for anybody, all right? <laughs> for God's sake, somebody in this place can lay hands on somebody and pray for somebody. You guys are off duty. Oh, hey, talking to you, Jer. Brent, you're off duty. Look, you can't get him away. You can't get him away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the challenge so powerful in all of our lives to pursue you and to go after you and to deal with our wicked hearts. Lord, forgive us where we missed you. Drive all these terrible things, Lord, out of us and fill us with righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And God, help us to begin moving with you so you can blow our minds over and over and over again. Lord, may these dead traditions fall off of us. Lord, may these empty rituals be driven out of this place. Lord, may, may we just simply pursue you with a pure heart. And, Lord, may you, may you continually blow our minds with what it is that you're wanting to do. Lord, touch people here today. If you don't know Jesus today, man, turn in religion. Turn in whatever your understanding of what you think church is all about. Turn it in 
and come running forward and say, I need to submit my life to Christ today. He's waiting for you. And this will be a start of an amazing, amazing eternity with Jesus Christ. If you need prayer for something, just say, ah, oh, man, I, I just need agreement. I'm living in fear. I'm anxious. I'm worried. I'm frustrated. I'm, whatever it is, this is a great day to leave that stuff at the altar. So the altars are open. We welcome you. Don't forget marriage class at 4 o'clock. We bless you in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. And you guys have a good day. Love you all.